One day, two agents on the squad came in my office and said that he had a, an informant, a source, who had given them information that the McDonald's monopoly, their promotional games monopoly, they've had a couple others, was compromised. Introducing The Protectors, inside criminal minds from around the world. Presented by the IAFCI, leaders in safeguarding consumers from fraud and scams for more than 50 years. And now your hosts, International President Mark Solomon and Chairman of the Board Michael Carroll. Hello, hello, hello. This is Mike Carroll, International Chairman of the International Association of Financial Crimes Investigators. I am with Mark Solomon, our international president. Mark, how are you doing today? Mr. Chairman, I'm doing great as usual, so uh, glad to be back for another podcast. And I'm actually looking forward uh, to our guest today because I did spend a lot of time at this location growing up. Uh, what he's going to be talking about, and I, I actually blame my uh, weight gain, I think, uh, on it. So, But he's not here to talk about weight gain. It's uh, really an incredible story about a fraud that was perpetrated on the public. So looking forward to it. And, uh, Mike, I know you're going in for a little bit of a surgery on Friday, so we wish a quick return and uh, want to make sure uh, we get you up and running as quick as possible. So. Well, I appreciate that. Everything, gonna, everything is going to be fine. I, I, I know right. that. Hey, Mark, I got to ask you, you know, just going back a little, remember we had our international conference, training conference that was to be held in Tampa, Florida, but uh, Mother Nature got in the way. And um, one of the things we tried to do after the conference being uh, canceled was to recognize those that were going to speak, right, Mark? Like uh, some of our general sessions, some of our sponsors, some of our exhibitors, um, some of our award winners. And one of the things we've tried to do is notice them by our uh, webinars and through yep. our podcast. And this Absolutely. is one of the reasons why we have a great guest today. He was going to be a, one of our general sessions speaker. And I, I, I knew looking back, you could tell who was going to attend various breakout sessions and things like that, general sessions. And his session was sold out. I mean, yeah. it was going to be packed. So we are glad we got a special guest today, don't we, Mark? I'm excited to introduce him. Mike, our next guest is retired from the FBI. He retired in 2015 after 26 years of service. He was initially signed to the San Antonio, Texas office where he investigated corruption, healthcare, government, and telemarketing fraud. He moved on to Washington, D.C. for the Independent Counsel investigation of then HUD Secretary Cisneros. And in 2000, he was promoted to white collar supervisor in Jacksonville. He led the investigations into the compromise of McDonald's promotional games, now on HBO's Emmy-nominated series, McMillions. In 2003, he launched and ran the first FBI office in Milan, Italy. Upon returning, he served on the Guantanamo Bay prosecution team, was unit chief of the FBI's intellectual property rights program, and was the Joint Terrorism Task Force Supervisor in Jacksonville. I don't know when this guy slept because, man, he had an incredible career. <laughs> and uh, after he retired in 2015, he joined U.S. Steel, overseeing all corporate investigations from 2016 to 2021. And he was Assistant Vice President for Security at Mace Rich and owner-operator of 50 Premier Shopping Destinations. Mike and I would like to welcome to the show Chris Graham. Thank you, guys. Awesome. It's an honor to be here. And uh, yeah, I'm catching up on a lot of the sleep now. Uh, I've been 
sleeping for a couple of years just trying to catch up. So uh, fantastic to be here. Uh, appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, Chris, it was it was terrible that we weren't weren't uh, able to see you at the IFCI conference in Tampa, Florida. Uh, we know you had a great presentation. Uh, like I said earlier, it was uh, it was kind of sold out. Everybody was looking forward to seeing your presentation. But hey, this is the next best thing, right, Mark? Podcast. That's right. On a podcast. Absolutely. You know. Chris, next year too. So. That's hey, right, Las year, Vegas. My, let's, let's plug it right now. It's in Las Vegas. You're more than welcome to attend. You're signed up. I think it's three to one. He's going to be there, Mark. <laughs> All right. Hey, Chris, can you tell us, you know, we were talking before the show started, and can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved uh, in law enforcement and specifically the FBI? We thought it was such a great, uh, I think, intro to this podcast, uh, how you decided to become an FBI agent. <laughs> sure, of course. And, um, uh, a lot of people ask, you know, is this something you wanted to do from the time you were a little kid? And I'd say absolutely not. In fact, I had no idea uh, what the FBI did or was, no interest whatsoever. I was uh, I was a young accountant, probably 25 years old, uh, bored as hell, uh, kind of miserable, working at a, a client up in, up in North Baltimore. And for some reason, I guess there was a bank robbery down the street and the suspect ran through the client's office and then out into the parking lot. And everybody ran to the windows to watch this guy be arrested by two guys in suits and had him on the roof of a, of a, or the hood of a Chevy Caprice. And, and people were saying, oh, my God, that's the FBI. And Well, it probably wasn't the FBI. It was, I'm sure it was Baltimore County deputies. But the seed was set that uh, I knew right away I belonged out there and not stuck in this conference room crunching numbers for the next 20 years so that's that's the that was the that was the impetus hey chris uh mark mentioned your biography i noticed uh, 2001 you were assigned uh to the jacksonville fbi office and throughout my career as a pulse inspector i worked numerous cases with the fbi and you worked on the white collar crime squad can you tell us a little bit about like white collar crimes? What type of crimes are those that you would investigate? So I, I got uh, miraculously somehow promoted from headquarters in 2000 to uh, to run the white collar crime squad in Jacksonville. And um, at the time, there were these lists of priorities that the FBI wanted everybody to focus on, and it was it was healthcare fraud, primarily overbilling or billing for non-existent patients. Um, public corruption, a lot of law enforcement corruption, and really those were the two highest priorities. But we also had cases in, in government fraud in terms of contract fraud on on, on DOD contracts, um, some securities investment type fraud. So so those were those were really the the, the main focus at the time. Um, telemarketing fraud had. Um, was was an issue, but it was was kind of dying out. So that was the portfolio. Fast food fraud was definitely not in that list of priorities. That's for sure. <laughs> no, Chris, and, and and you know, like a lot of people think with the FBI, you know, um, it's a very diverse organization where they do pull from accountants, lawyers, uh, linguists. So, you know, it, it's cool to see that you started out, you know, with an accounting background and then, you know, led into a very successful career in, and obviously the case that we're going to talk about now. So 
I uh, appreciate your service to the FBI and, and, and to the United States. So um, can you tell uh, our audience how you got involved in this McDonald's investigation? Uh, you know, how did it start? And like you just said, you were just shocked that you'd be investigating a, a fast food chain, you know. So if you could tell our audience, that'd be great. Sure. So I got to Jacksonville and I, I found a squad that was, um, I think I would describe it as kind of uninspired, uh, sleepy, not real motivated to to get out and kind of work the, the, the cases that we needed to work, healthcare fraud, uh, things like that. I had two agents on the squad who I never really saw much of. Uh, and I know I, now I know why, because they were out kicking butt on cases. And it was a, a young guy named Doug Matthews and, and another senior agent named Rick Dent. One day, Doug Matthews came in my office and said that he had a, a, a an informant, a source, so to speak, who had given them information that the McDonald's monopoly, um, their promotional games monopoly, they've had a couple others, was compromised. And there was, there was some sketchy information that came along with that, names of a couple of winners, and it was really almost unbelievable. And, and I think everybody was kind of skeptical because, as we all know, you know, sources will tell you anything if, if they think there's um, something at the end of the rainbow for them. Um, so that was, that, was, that was the impetus. It was this, this sort of way out of left field tip about these games being compromised. And, uh, you know, from there, what transpired over the next, she's probably nine months went from something that was, was just this, this one-off wild tip to at the time, um, you know, probably one of the most significant white collar crime cases in the country that, um, you know, we can, I'm sure we'll get into you know, how it developed, but, but that was, that was the impetus. Initially, you got a tip from a source. You know, I always talk about, like, informants, why they come forward. Maybe it's for money, for revenge. Was there any reason this person came forward with that tip? Yeah, you know, it was obviously money uh, was was a factor. Um, as, it, as it developed and we learned more about the case, there might have been a little bit of, you know, family revenge involved. So, and for me... Um, those kind of motives are clear. Like if I understand the motive of somebody bringing, bringing something to me, even if, even if I don't like the motive, uh, but if I see it and I understand it, then, then I'm good with it. So, so that was ultimately what, you know, what the motive was. And Chris, what was the, uh, what was the specific information this source uh, indicated? What was he claiming was going on? Yeah, it was, again, Rather, rather bizarre. He named, he said there was, the, the games had been compromised. There was, there was some guy named Uncle Jerry. Um, there was also somebody named Jerry Colombo who was married to a Robin Colombo. Um, he said this, this Jerry Colombo had won a, a Dodge Viper through McDonald's and that there, there was also somebody named Dominic. There, there was implications of some, some organized crime. And that all these winners were somehow tied in together, and that was that was really the initial kind of vague tip. Now, once we you know once we we opened the case and, and got kind of serious about this, which was you know pretty quickly, we went back and and got 
some more specific information from the informant or the source, wherein he named people who had won and, and again, gave the names, gave the amounts, approximate years they won. Um, okay, that's, that's great. Um, he, could be, he could be making this stuff up because people who win these games are generally, sometimes they're not publicized. I mean, there's no, there's no database you can go to online to see, you know, everybody who won, but it started to become a, you know, a little more, a little more specific in terms of the names that he was given. Now, once we had those names and we could do some background, see where they lived, the, the break in the case, well, there was a lot of breaks, but, but the first thing that really kind of got everybody's attention was looking at the, these names that he gave us and seeing that they were either relatives, somehow related to one another, that they had shared common addresses and or had extensive telephonic contact with one another. So he's giving us names and, and we're pulling together that all these names are somehow associated with each other. Still, again, okay, he's giving us this information. He's saying they're winners. We, we don't know that that's a fact. And, and that leads to kind of the first, really the, the first kind of huge decision in the, well, the first huge decision was to work the case because we're pulling, <laughs> we're pulling, pulling resources away from priorities. So, so we get, obviously got past that decision. But the next big decision, hey, Chris, is, uh, that, that brings up a great point. How hard of, of a sell was this? I know you were a supervisor right at the time, but how hard of a sell was this uh, up the chain with the FBI to open a, a case on this? You know, I'm usually the first critic of the FBI and, and more specifically its management and leadership. Um, in this case, everybody up the chain embraced this and, and, oh. I th- I think it was because like like me they saw that okay if this is true it's it's just huge it's significant and it's it's something you've got to run down so um fortunately you know fortunately there was no resistance going up the chain um wasn't you know wasn't smooth sailing but uh, none of the none of the discussions took more than more than a couple of a couple of minutes that's great. I mean, sometimes it's very hard to sell these cases at the beginning, but, uh, you know, it sounded like everybody with the information that you gathered initially that, you know, there definitely seemed like there needed to be a case open. So that's great. Yeah, Chris, I was going to ask, too, how far in the investigation did you have to or did you let McDonald's corporate people know that there was this investigation going on? Right. So, so your question kind of leads right into what I was going to say was the second big decision uh, in the case. And that is, we've got these names of these people. They're all associated. We've got an informant who says they're winners. We need to verify that. Now, at the time, we knew literally nothing about McDonald's, the games, um, how they ran. There was a working theory that this was, there was somebody inside McDonald's and that if we tip our hand here, we're going to, we're going to blow the case. Um, we made a calculated bet that we could reach out to their security, their head of security, a guy named Rob Holm, great guy, and kind of run these names by him 
just to confirm that they will, that they were winners. And so we did that and it, it obviously paid off. We learned right away that, well, we learned two things. One, yeah, good grief. They are winners. And now that changes the calculus of everything. And two, that McDonald's subcontracted basically everything to do with the games, running the games, printing the pieces, everything to a to a company named Simon Marketing, who we'll, we'll get into later. But going back to the, the the confirmation that these people were winners, that okay, you know the names. I won't bore you all with the names, but but you have a group of people that coincidentally are all associated with one another. Their relatives and they've all won. They've all won pieces. It's a statistical impossibility. It doesn't. <laughs> there's no way. Yeah. yeah. There's statistical impossibility, and that's all well and good. But we all know you can't go to court. You can't indict people and convict people based on statistical impossibility. So, uh, but but we knew we knew then that we really had something. We were, however, missing a, a key piece, which you know, is in the middle. How is this happening? Yeah. And Chris, uh, you guys, uh, in many cases, like law enforcement does when they're large investigations, you gave a, a nickname or a name to this case. Can you explain what that was and why you named it that? <laughs> yeah. So, um, if you remember at the time there was a, um, the TV show with Regis film, and I think it was who wants to be a millionaire and McDonald's was running promotions based on that game. Um, and at the end of the show, I think when the person was going to make their final answer, their final bet, he would say, is that your final answer? So the initial name of the case was Operation Final Answer. But that, that, was, not, that was not our first choice. Um, when we started running this, I kind of ran a little contest around the office to see, okay, come up with, come up with different names. Because if you didn't submit a name, headquarters would pick one for you and they would just take like an adjective and a noun and you would get something like, you know, orange leopard or something, something that didn't make sense. So you were, it was beneficial to submit your name. So we had this contest. The best name that came out, I thought was operation unhappy meal. Um, we submitted that to headquarters (laughs) and they said, they said, no way you can't use that. That's there's all kinds of, all kinds of problems with it. So the second choice was Operation Final Answer, and that became the the, the code name for the for the case. Nice. Hey, Chris, you got uh, McDonald's on board, upper uh, management on board. Uh, you got a name for the case. What would be the piece of evidence that got the case moving really quick? What what turned it to uh, okay? Now we know what they're doing. Yeah. So I think at the time we had, and and I, I'm. I'm the FBI, in terms of kind of the white-collar business, the, the methodology of working white-collar crime cases was, um, you know, I'm sure there were exceptions, but it was mostly historical. So you go get the documents, you look at the documents, you go interview witnesses, and you put together a historical case. Meanwhile, on the other side of the office, the, the guys working drugs were working things that were ongoing and proactive and, and relying heavily on telephone analysis. Um, I had, I mean, I had spent some time in San Antonio on the, on the drug squad and kind of, I, I, I thought that, well, let me, let me back up. So McDonald's told us that in Simon marketing, 
there was a guy named Jerry Jacobson who was the head of security, uh, was kind of the guy who had everything to do with delivering the the winning pieces. And so you think about it, Jerry Jacobson, hmm, that's interesting. The source kept telling us there was this Uncle Jerry, Uncle Jerry. In fact, they even the source even said Uncle Jerry was a former FBI agent. So the pieces start coming together. So we start looking at this guy, Jerry Jacobson. Um, so we've got Jerry Jacobson, and now we've got, or, or we always had winners. So you, this string of winners. Well, how do you connect them? And, and this is where, when, when I mentioned telephone analysis and the old drug cases, is you look for common numbers. Are they calling a common number? And that, to answer your question, once we did that, and we found not only did we have statistical impossibilities of winners being related, we looked for common numbers and, you know, good grief. Now we've got Jacobson calling the same numbers that the winners have been in contact with. And, you know, that, that really, now we've, now we've started to put a case together. And what I call those people in the middle were, they were, they were the middlemen. They were the, uh, uh, Dwight Baker, um, Ronald Huey, there's some of the names, Dwight and Linda Baker in South Carolina. There was a guy named um, Glum who came up later on. But we started putting together the, this spider chart of the connections of these phone calls from Jacobson to ultimately to winners with the middlemen in the middle. And, you know, the, the working theory then at the time. And, and, and proved to be true was, okay, Jacobson's stealing the pieces. He's, he's distancing himself from the winners by using front people or middlemen to find winners. Um, piece gets delivered, winner claims the prize, and then obviously there's, there's money kicked back up the chain. So, you know, that again, phone records are great, um, but you know, we still needed more to, I think, obviously put a case together that that's going to prove up our case. Hey, Chris, what was the take uh, for Jacobson uh, on these kickbacks? Was there a certain percentage and, and what did he benefit out of all this? Yeah. You know, it, it varied from person to person. So the, the analogy I use is this. So somebody wins a million dollars. Well, you don't get a million dollars. If you take it all in cash, it's the present value of a million dollars at the time. I was like, you know, 460, something like that, 460,000. Right away, you're paying taxes, a couple, you know, 100,000 goes to taxes. So there's still a pretty big chunk of change left. Um, most of the winners really only got a fraction of it and money got kicked back up. But, you know, it, it, it really it kind of varied. And it was something that, you know, in, in retrospect, we, we probably never. You know, I, I think I think some of it came out in trial, but but in the, in the lead up to the to the takedown and everything, you know, we 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 knew we knew money was getting kicked back, but we never really, by individual winners, nailed down exactly how much got got pushed back. Now there was, you know, in in the McMillions TV show on on, um, on HBO, there was a lady named Gloria Brown who literally ended up with almost nothing. I mean, she ended up, you know, paying. Uh, getting a second on her mortgage to pay pay up the chain and never collected the money. So 
uh, there were some oh. you know, some unfortunate, sad stories in the mix there as well. Hey, Chris, can I ask you, part of your investigation, um, you mentioned before, uh, involved wiretap. How did that come into play? Yeah, so we, we had put together statistically historical case, but we've got we've to catch these people in the act. And really, the only way to do that is do two things. You convince McDonald's to run the game again. I'm sure that was not an easy decision for them, but they did. So they agree to run the game, and we submit the application for a Title III wiretap on Jacobson's phone, Baker's phone, a few others, started around July of 2001. And over the next month, we are watching the whole scheme, or or listening, I shouldn't say watching, we're listening to the whole scheme unravel through intercepted phone calls. Hmm. Can you give just give an overview of what, what, what the whole scheme? Can you just give a quick overview of what you've learned on the wiretap and how the scheme operated? Yeah, so one of the things we, we learned right away was that Dwight Baker had found somebody to win, uh, falsely claim a prize, and in the conversations between Baker and Jacobson, um, they arranged to actually meet to deliver uh, – Jacobson's going to deliver the winning piece to Baker, who's in turn going to send it off to ultimately some guy in Texas who he had recruited to win. So by, by listening to that and you, you know, the scheme, you know, the scam and you, you, you know what they're talking about. We put it all together and we actually ended up doing, we surveilled their meeting at a place called Chateau Elan in North Georgia and surveilled them meeting in the parking lot and, passing an envelope from uh, Jacobson to Baker. And ultimately, we knew then, we, we told McDonald's before who was going to win, because we already knew. We said this guy, uh, I think it was Mike Brown, was going to call and claim the prize. And he's from Grand Prairie, Texas. And sure enough, that's what happened. Hmm. Hey, Chris, let me ask you, though, some of our listeners haven't seen the HBO documentary. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But when they met, just for our listeners, what did he hand off? Was it a counterfeit piece or was it an original piece that they knew was going to be a winning piece? Yeah. So the pieces were never they were never counterfeited. So there was a they would print out a winning piece. And then um, Jacobson had a, a technique where he would when he would travel with the winning piece to place the winning piece into circulation. So we'd go to some factory and it's supposed to go on a French fry box. That's supposed to go into Texas. Um, what he would do is on the way he would break from his partner. There was a lady who was supposed to accompany him. He would go into the restroom and he would switch the, he would just put a regular piece in the envelope falsely seal it and then take the winning piece back. And then he would go back to wherever he would. So everybody would think the winning piece had gone into circulation in Texas. And in fact, it was now being passed to a a, a pre-selected co-conspirator winner. And Chris, through your investigation, uh, did you ever find anybody within McDonald's or corporate was involved in the fraud or was it just... Uh, this individual, and I forget the name of the company there, but uh, was there anyone inside uh, McDonald's involved in this? No, not at all. Not at all. And in fact, McDonald's right. was a, a great partner, and Simon Marketing was the company that Jacobson worked for. And 
when when all was said and done, he alone within Simon Marketing was was the guy doing this, and Simon Marketing ended up going out of business right. as a result of it, which was a shame. Hey, Chris, what was the total amount of time on this investigation? Was it a year or two? So started in in the spring of 2001. Takedown was, uh, Title Three was in, in June, July. Uh, we had some undercover work in August. And on August 28th, 2001 was the first takedown. Of course, 9-11 happened, and that sort of changed the uh, the resource commitment to the case. But trial, there were, there were superseding indictments and then trials in the spring of, of 2002. So relatively speaking, the actual investigation part was was pretty darn fast. Chris, I was going to ask you, how many were arrested in this investigation? Would you know how many played out and how many went to trial? Yeah, initially the first, the, the, the national takedown was the eight key people, and that made national news. That was in August, I think I, I said the 28th, right around there. Um, first superseding indictment was September 10th, and then the second superseding indictment was in November. Ultimately, it was like 54 uh, defendants, 54 people. Uh, indicted. Wow. Um, almost all of them pled. I think, again, I'm going off a of memory here. Uh, about, I think, five or so went to trial. Jacobson pled. Most of the main players pled, and most of the winners pled. Um, a couple of folks went to trial, uh, a guy named George Chandler, uh, and a couple of the other winners. Long story, but convicted at trial, and then there was there was an appeal, and one of the convictions got overturned, and, and that's a whole nother. I mean, that's a that's a maybe for a legal podcast and, and appellate work. That's that's a topic to study. That case, I won't bore the listeners with that. They can they can Google it and do their own research. But um, but yeah. So Chris, I have to I have to pick a bone with you a little bit. Um, I was four years into my law enforcement career, and I spent quite a bit of money at McDonald's trying to get those uh, pieces off the uh, French yep. fry boxes. Probably put on some extra weight. You know, could you have given Mike and I a heads up? Uh, maybe while this, I know <laughs> it was kind of top secret, but you know, I, I could have lost a lot of weight uh, if you you told us. <laughs> Chris, I won't say that, Mark. Mark ate a lot of Big Macs, but he would eat out in front and watch the numbers change on the sign. That's how many burgers he was eating. <laughs> oh, that's not right. <laughs> and, and let me make sure I understand. The only reason he was going and buying those Big Macs was on the chance of winning one of these promotions. Otherwise, if he had known, what you're saying is, if he had known the games were fixed, he would have never I would have been eating eat. salad. He'd still be there. Yeah, I would have been go. salad and vegetables. That's it. Yeah, I, I still I still go to McDonald's. Uh, <laughs> but but Chris, uh, what was the uh, ultimate sentence for Jerry Jacobson? He he got like three years. So three years, and, and I think a lot of people get upset about that. But you guys work white collar. You know that getting and it's changed. I mean, I, I think some of the sentences lately have gotten better, but. You know, back then, to, to even get a white collar criminal to do jail time was, and, and he had pled. So um, we always want longer sentences, but it is what it is. Sure. Yep. Hey, Chris, we're asking you to give us uh, the, a two year investigation in about 20 minutes. But if they, um, the HBO documentary, McMillions, if somebody was to see that, or they would know about the whole case from the beginning at the end, right? Yeah, I mean, and, and the documentary is six episodes. I think they did a really good job with it. 
I mean, that's a lot of, that's a big time commitment, obviously six, six, one hour episodes, but it's entertaining. Um, if you watch it, it's not in chronological order. Obviously they move things around to, to tell the story, but, um, but, but they cover it, they cover it start to finish. And, um, I, I think they, you know, they did it. They did a, a good job. Obviously it got a lot of, a lot of attention and nominated for a few Emmys. And, um, yeah. I think it's, it's probably on, uh, I know it's still available. Yeah, no, I've seen it myself, and uh, it, it was a great series. And to actually now get to interview uh, one of the agents, you know, that was heavily involved in this case, is is awesome. And uh, so, how how did it feel turning into sort of a celebrity and and being uh, you know involved in an HBO production? Uh, did you ever think that was going to happen to you in your career? <laughs> Not at all. And when we started this, I mean, I had you know I had retired. I mean, this was twenty almost 20 years after the case and moved on and, and, and got this call from one of the producers, a guy, James Hernandez, who, who ultimately became a good friend. And it was, you know, you, you're kind of tentative as law enforcement. You're not sure where they're coming from. And we met a few times and little by little, I, I really came to trust him and, and realized that they were genuinely curious about how a case like this gets put together. And I saw it, I mean, I saw it as an opportunity to highlight good work by federal law enforcement, which doesn't always get done. So, nice. you know, once I got comfortable with it, and I, w- I was all, I was all in and, and and worked on it and gave them as much as I possibly could in terms of time and resources. Yeah, Chris, I, I remember seeing it. Now, who who played you? I think was that Brad Pitt that played you? Oh, that was a different that was a different documentary. <laughs> I can't remember that one. Robin Williams or something. <laughs> <laughs> did you get any uh residual for uh for, for this documentary no and and that's you know that's they didn't need they didn't need to pay anybody and because okay. there was plenty of people to talk about this jacobson wanted money is my understanding this is what i was told <laughs> to appear and that's sure why he he's did. not in it. <laughs> yeah and that's why he's not in it you know there's other things you can you can ask for, you can ask for certain kind of credit and stuff that on screen credit and, and things like that. Uh, but, but at the end of the day, it really, for me, it opened, it did two things. It really opened my eyes into how much work goes into putting something like this together. I mean, you think documentary, it's just that ah, we'll, we'll shoot some film, we'll do some interviews and throw it together. No, it's a whole lot more goes into it. A lot of research. Uh, so I, I have a lot more respect now for the people who do this. And, and kind of opened my eyes to uh, some other possibilities, you know, into that business. Well, my, Mike and I can attest to that because, uh, you know, we were never involved in podcast production before and uh, working with Doug Taylor and Modified Media, you know, there is a lot of work and effort that goes into this. So uh, we definitely have that newfound respect for people in, in this business. And, uh, you know, uh, we're very lucky to have uh, Doug and the team with us. So I wanted to just switch gears real quick. I want to go back and you, you mentioned that, you know, uh, he only got three years, but that was a kind of a success for financial crimes. And, you know, I, being in t- uh, law enforcement for 26 years, you know, I, I did see that, too, where a lot of times people stole a lot of money. They didn't get a lot of prison time, you know. And again, I feel like we're going back 
trending that way again. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts about uh, financial crimes, the impact of it. And, you know, do we need to get a little tougher with prosecution on people? You know, yes, embezzlements, frauds, but we also have financial crimes that are connected to gangs, robberies, violent crimes. I mean, what's your what's your take now that you're retired? That Would you like to see stiffer penalties or? But, uh, yeah, and of course. And I think you point out there's the downstream impact of, you know, of these crimes, the, the impact to victims, um, the loss of confidence in in institutions. So, I mean, McDonald's is not really the great example, but you trust an organization is safeguarding your money or running a proper game or or, or right. your, your stock trading is, is is the way it's supposed to be. And when that trust is gone, that, that impacts far more than just the loss of the money and a few identified victims. I mean, it, it, it affects the whole, the whole economy. So, um, but I do, you know, I agree. I think, you know, I, I think the sentences are never, never adequate for these kind of things. So Chris, um, you know, to, to follow up on that is, you know, does the punishment fit the crime sometimes? And, and you know, uh, I know in federal prisons, uh, usually a, a person that commits a financial crime, if they get sentenced to prison, they're going to be put in a different facility, a low level versus, you know, a maximum security prison. Do you see any advantage or disadvantages of that? And does it really deter, you know, these fraudsters from trying to do something when they get back out? I, I think it does. I mean, I, I think obviously greed is is the prime motivator, but in 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 the calculus of you're committing a fraud, you know that okay, if I get caught, I pay the money back, and I might have to go to jail. You know, but jail it's gonna like you say it's gonna be at maybe at the federal level, which is a heck of a lot nicer than any state institution. And because I'm a white collar guy, I'm going to go probably to some place, uh, minimum security or a camp or something like that. And and a lot of these folks come out of there, um, I almost almost as if it was a good experience. They they lose weight, they make friends, they they get they read a lot of books, you know, learn learn different skills. So you know, now the flip side obviously is. Can you send somebody who is an accountant who embezzled money? You know, do you send him to a, a violent maximum place where his physical existence is going to be threatened? I think, I, I think the, the the defense side can make an argument that that that's you know, borderline cruel and unusual punishment or something. And and there's always the fear that he's going to teach him how to commit financial crimes to other criminals. Yeah. So you know, maybe it's a double edged sword. I guess. So, Chris, man, I, I learned a lot about this investigation. Um, we really appreciate you sharing this with our audience. And um, I was disappointed not to get to meet you in person in Florida. Uh, but this was great to, to do this podcast and, you know, advise our listeners that there are scams going out there uh, every day. You know, we hear about them, but there's also bad people that work with good companies and organizations that could do a lot of damage. So uh, really appreciate you coming on the show and uh, I think we need to get you back with all your experience and background and where you've been. Uh, I think we need to do a, a part two, I think, with you uh, if you're not busy. Happy to do it. Happy to do it. It's been a lot of fun. Obviously, I love talking about this case and, and really anything else uh, anything else that's uh, germane. I'm happy to happy to chat. So. 
appreciate the opportunity. Awesome, Chris. Thank you again. We're glad to have you on today. It's awesome. And then, uh, Chris, if you do get any wind of any other fast food chain places where there's fraud going on, can you let me know so I don't go and eat so much food there? But uh, <laughs> so. All right, Mike. Well, listen, another great episode. We're so uh, honored to have uh, Chris on with us today. And uh, before we go, I just want to say to our audience, thank you. This is the reason why we're doing this, is to put this information out there to protect our citizens from being victimized from fraud and also help those recover that are victims of these type of crimes. So, Mike, where can uh, people go to listen to our podcast? Uh, they could go to uh, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, uh, Google, and uh, go to the Protectors Podcast. We're there. Yep. Uh, yep. What do we end up going on episode fifty four? We're I've lost we're track. Right, I know we're I know we're, we're right, in the fifties. We're, we're, we're right in the mid fifties. Hey, Mark, too. We will put in the show notes, right, Chris? We can put your information there. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, we could put the information about the HBO documentary um, McMillions. We could put that up there. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Please do. Please do. All right, folks. Well, that's a wrap. And uh, I'm Mark Solomon here in Connecticut, signing off. And I'm Mike Carroll in Chicago. See you again. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Remember, as you join the fight to protect our citizens, you're not alone. With more than 6,500 members from around the world, the men and women of the IAFCI are standing together with you. To learn more or to join the IAFCI, please visit our website at www.iafci.org. The Protectors Podcast is produced by Modified Media and is available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. The hosts and guest opinions are their own and do not reflect those of management, employers, or sponsors. Listeners are encouraged to contact law enforcement if they suspect being a victim of a crime.